Thank you for joining me this week on this episode of Beyond Risk and Back. There is a conversation I have with a lot of my clients about the difference between the story and the storyteller. And I believe that Dr. Stephen Gardner, who is our guest today on Beyond Risk and Back and his journey with his son, and I'm going to let him tell the, the entire story of this experience with his son, because as parents, when our kids are not able to get out of this loop of actions and results, actions and results, as parents, we get caught up in actions and results. And what Dr. Gardner and his wife and his community was able to do with his son is meet the storyteller, not just get caught up in the story. And it's I, I I am hesitant to say more because I just want Dr. Stephen Gardner to tell you the story of his son who is no longer with us and what it's like to have a child that when they pass 700 plus show up to the funeral. How did this child who never said a word affect so many people and what it's, what is it like for parents to go past the story? The story has limitations. The story has illness. The story has difficulty. But the storyteller is pure light, pure love. How do we find that as parents? We're going to let Dr. Gardner teach us. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Dr. Stephen Gardner is the author of Jabberwocky. All right, Dr. Gardner. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank Thanks you. This is our this is our take to uh technical yeah. difficulties coming in. So um thank you. And and thank you for um for talking so openly and plainly about your son, your son's death, and the experience with him. T- tell us about him. Tell tell us the story. You know, there's there's no sugarcoating uh, losing a child, Aaron. Obviously, right? It's probably the worst thing that can happen. And um, but uh, as I as I mentioned to you earlier when we were just chatting, uh, a social worker said to me, "It's not how long Graham was here on Earth; it's the love he spread while he was here that matters." He was here 22 years actually a pretty long time, depending on how you want to look at it. Right. And long enough to impact an awful lot of people, even though he couldn't speak because he had severe cerebral palsy, even though he was in a wheelchair and had to be pushed everywhere. There was something inside him that's uh, a little hard to describe very articulate, articulate because it was ethereal, some sort of radiance or goodness or compassion or ultimately love that just came out of him through his eyes and impacted all of us around him. So in the beginning, it was, it was of course, um, frustrating not to have a, a boy that you could throw the ball around with, not to have a son that was going to ride a bike, uh, all those conventional things. But over time, uh, how we thought about the quality of life changed very, very dramatically because of who he was. And just the experience of being with him, whether we were doing anything or not, uh, was quite poignant, quite profound, quite wonderful in the end. I guess that's the first question I want to to have you discuss with 
with us, my listeners, and and myself is, was there a moment where you just said, look, we need to, was this a conscious change of saying, we need to change our understanding of quality of life? Or did this something that emerge on you to say, you know what, These, this is what good times actually look like? Or was it a, a, a sacrifice surrender of what you thought should, could, would be? I think it was gradual. Um, I think it took time for that to happen. Um, when when he was 10 years old, for example, we had already sort of be, become convinced that there was something wonderful going on with this boy. But we were invited to go to a summer camp on Martha's Vineyard, six miles off of Cape Cod, called Camp Jabberwocky, which was one of the first, if not the first, sleepover camps for people with serious disabilities in the United States, having started way back in the 1950s. And in that place, we met an unbelievable eclectic group of campers and counselors and volunteers who seemed to subscribe to the idea that whatever we can do or can't do, we're all in this together. We're all equals. we are all members of one community, ultimately one family. And when Graham uh, first went there, I was lucky enough to ride his coattails in there as one of the camp doctors. So I got to hang around and watch what goes on there. And what, besides mutual support and resilience, there's also a huge element of silliness that goes on there. Laughter, teasing, fun, humor. And uh, as I would learn later, there's sort of a scientific reason why that makes us feel good, um, is to laugh and to be silly. Uh, for example, our stress hormone cortisol actually goes down when we're teasing one another and laughing. And a lot of the feel-good hormones go up, like endorphins and oxytocin. There's a lot of research being done on that at places like, like Stanford right now. So anyway, we got submerged into this community that was almost like an alternate universe where the conventional notions of power and beauty and wealth, you know, just receded into insignificance. And being together, um, enjoying each day, seizing the day, carpe diem, helping one another became the, you know, the ethos that we observed at camp and then slowly over 13 summers that sort of became our own our own ethos. So besides Graham's own unique charisma and sort of ethereal goodness and radiance, we ended up in this magical place that just amplified uh, the essence of that experience, this place called Jabberwocky. How do you see, and, and this is, a, recall, you know, as, as, as you and I got connected uh, through your publicist, that, that my audience, these are parents who are really struggling with their kids. Like, like these kids are, these kids are making extremely risky choices. These kids are, are struggling with mental health issues, uh, uh, you know, developmental issues, things like that. And you having that experience and you're a medical doctor, correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so not only do you have the experience, but then you have this, this training behind it that, that keeps this technical 
understanding of what your son's going through spinning in your brain and then the struggle you're you you talk about having to feed him you talk about you know that that he's in a wheelchair everywhere you go how were you able to to see past especially at a young age to this ethereal radiance you keep referencing how how were you not just taken out by the experience and just you know shaking your hands at god why why me why us why him why this I think there were times when we were frustrated and angry. I don't want to try to sugarcoat that part of the experience. Sure. Um, when Graham was quite young, he was in the hospital and uh, was actually near death. Uh, he was in a coma. His mom and I read uh, read the book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And um, in that book, there's a question about whether God is omniscient good or both and if god is omniscient why would bad things happen to good people and so harold kushner the rabbi who wrote that book concludes i believe if i'm paraphrasing him correctly that god uh, does not want terrible things to happen to anybody god is good god is present in the love that we receive when bad things happen but doesn't want bad things to happen so shortly after this experience, I got a note from one of my patients who was studying theology, and I hit him with this conundrum about when bad things happen to good people. And he wrote me a note. I actually received it at home a short time after a visit. He said, Dr. Gardner, when this happened to Graham, God was the first one to cry. And that made me feel really, really much better about the whole situation. Um, that God's presence was going to be in the form of love that we would feel from our friends and neighbors who would support us. In that moment and in many moments after that, after Graham left the hospital, it got better. Um, so I think our, our attention turned to, you know, to love uh, and how you know, we didn't have to be outside doing a lot of stuff, achieving a lot of things. We could just be by ourselves at home, uh, listening to music, sitting in front of a fire. We lived in New England. We'd have a wood fire going. And just being together, being together, uh, seemed to be more than enough uh, many times. How did this impact? Although, although we did go out and we did end up doing a lot of things uh, using using uh, pioneers who, who taught us how to do things with adaptive sports. So yeah. we did end up going out and doing a lot of stuff. That was more of those poignant moments of just being together uh, where we realized something really important was going on, even though we weren't doing anything specific. We were just being together. How did this impact your relationship? With Graham's mom? Yeah. It's, it's strained it at times. Uh, he had trouble uh, sleeping uh, because of the cerebral palsy. He had epilepsy too, so there, were, there was an issue with seizures. So one or the other of us was usually up at night keeping an eye on things. And so sleep deprivation was a, a concern and, and was a factor. Uh, but I think, you know, even when we felt you know, um, depleted, somehow Graham's energy and Graham's goodness got, got us through. And it did, you know, even though it was hard at times, physically and otherwise, uh, you know, he, he somehow gave us the extra energy to pull, to pull through. 
And now what about self-care through this entire experience? I imagine you talk about depletion, the lack of sleep, things like that. What did you do to replenish? How did you take care of yourself? Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that one of the gifts I was given was becoming the camp doctor at uh, Jabberwocky. And uh, there's, no, there's no volunteer that's ever been at Jabberwocky that won't say the same thing which is that they get way more out of the experience than they give to it. Um, so being a caregiver, donating time, caring for others was hugely important. Um, I also found that you know, reconnecting year after year with these same people and laughing with them and being silly, silly with them as an extended family was incredibly therapeutic also. Um, I like taking pictures. So in the beginning, I was sort of the designated photographer for camp. And uh, I realized I had a bit, a bit of a skill there, a bit of a niche for um, taking pictures of a caregiver and a camper together. And somehow in those images are revealing that they were both getting a, a lot out of the experience equally. Um, and then also, I think just physically taking care of ourselves as mom and I, you know, tried to stay in shape, uh, tried to do workouts, tried to get outside, um, and tried to get outdoors where we had some spiritual feeling about the world around us, and not just be indoors all the time. So those are some of the some of the techniques that we we used uh, to help ourselves. I have to ask this question: Is there ever any doubt or experience that you have that you might be glorifying memorializing a really challenging difficult time making the best of it making light of it when um and and is that is this you trying to find the light in the past or was there something you did then and and you really hit on it when you talked about just being together Sometimes when you were just sitting around a fire, just being together. But I know parents are listening to this. I, I often say I have my listener's voice in my head who are parents who are really struggling with what's going on with their kids. And you, there's a grace to you. And there's a grace to your, your presentation of your experience. Is there hindsight added up in your grace? Or did you find it with your kid? And for God's sake, how? <laughs> Teach us how. You know, what, 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 what did you learn yeah. that you're here to pass on? Uh, boy, that's a big question. Uh, and we met other parents who had children very similar to Graham in terms of the degree of disability, um, nonverbal, wheelchair, needing to be fed. Uh, and they had, they, they had much more bitter experiences. Uh, they ran into people that, that they didn't feel were very kind. Um, they felt that it was a constant challenge to find services for their kids. Um, that just wasn't the case for us. It just felt as if wherever we went with Graham, uh, we met kind people, almost without exception. I know that sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, but uh, I, we can't think of an example of, of cruelty, uh, even on the part of his of his peers when he was young, like when he was in third or fourth grade. Wow. Those kids just seemed to intuitively get it, that he was all there, 
cognitively. He was all there spiritually. He just couldn't do certain things. Um, and instead of teasing him or laughing at him, they, they embraced him. So, so part of my, my reaction to your question is I watched other people responding to Graham, including very young kids. And I saw that they intuitively understood uh, the beauty of compassion. No one taught them about it. Um, for example, pushing his wheelchair uh, was something I wrote about in the book. His fourth grade teacher designated a kid each day to be the, quote, designated driver. And that became, uh, became not an onerous thing, but actually a coveted thing for wow. another kid to get to be Graham's driver for the day. So these sort of charismatic, uh, you know, lovely kids um, took it on themselves to include him in, in every possible way in their lives and basically revealed that um, they found no reason to be afraid of someone who was different or to shy away from someone who was different. And my, my theory about that is that we have, we have to learn that. Somebody later on has to teach us to be afraid of people who are different. There's a, uh, there's because a, these, good, yeah, these very young people didn't have that at all. Didn't feel that way at all. There seems to be a wonderful embracing of the struggle that that took place in your environment with 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 Graham with his teachers with his peers everybody embraced this there there's a there's a level of compassion that we're not shown on the news that your son got to experience from life and we're not taught to embrace the struggle we're taught to resist and fight and struggle back and we start to struggle very simply because we're struggling and I can only imagine that there was struggle, that there were times that, that it yeah. became so overwhelming, but you got to see the best of human. Was that, was that them or was that your son? Did he, did he invoke that or was this the environment that you had found were drawn to connected with where it's just like, this is a safe place for our kid and we can trust humans. So Camp Jabberwocky really changed everything because that place uh, just turns everything upside down. And um, when we, when, by the way, when we leave there at the end of the summer, those of us who are lucky enough to be volunteers there or campers, the question we all ask ourselves on the ferry leaving the island is, why can't the rest of the world be more like Camp Jabberwocky? Why can't the rest of the world be a place where people have open hearts and open minds and genuinely embrace each other's differences. Maybe argue about them, maybe complain about them, but in the end, embrace them and accept that, that we're all part of one human family. Maybe that sounds a little corny, but that is how it is at Jabberwocky. And we all look forward to those moments for the whole year when we finally get down there and we, and we get absorbed into that community for a week or two weeks or four weeks, whatever it may be. And when we leave there, we feel sad. We feel this sort of loss because we know we're going back to a world that isn't really like that most of the time. There's a there's a, a expression, if you'll permit me to add something to that. There, there was a young writer from Yale named Marina Keegan who coined this beautiful phrase, the opposite of loneliness. She wrote an essay by that name when she graduated from college. 
And it referred to the feeling that she had when she was among like-minded people who cared deeply about one another, who teased one another, who laughed together, who dream about the future, who support one another if there's a loss or a failure. Um, but when they're together, it's a beautiful feeling. And she tried to figure out uh, what the name was for that feeling, and she couldn't think of a word. So she said, whatever that is, I'm just going to call it the opposite of loneliness. So I would say the opposite of loneliness describes how I feel at Camp Jabberwocky, how we felt there with our son. And I think how most people who go there and visit their field, and they walk away scratching their heads, wondering why more places can't make you feel that way. There's a there's a temptation I have to say, um, well, you got lucky. Well, you were privileged. Well, you you had the ability to facilitate an environment like this for your son. But that would be denying the fact that your son had cerebral palsy and your son had epilepsy. And, and you as a family suffered fatigue and, and living and parenting beyond the fatigue state into having to tap into something else to sustain a positive experience. Is that accurate? You know, is, is this luck or is this you saying, no, no, we found something beyond the limits of parenting. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. So for one thing, Graham was physically very, very beautiful. He was, he was perfect physically. He had perfect teeth, perfect hair. He, he was movie star handsome. So it was hard for a babysitter, you know, not to love hanging around with him. I've spent time, uh, by contrast, I've spent time at the Shriners Burns Hospital. And it's very difficult to be around uh, youngsters that have been badly burned. Yes. With facial, facial burns. So, so if that part of it, I would say to your point, is, was luck that we had this boy who was physically beautiful. There was nothing about him that looked odd to an observer uh, that looked frightening or scary or put them off. Uh, but then as we went through the experience, it went far beyond just his physical beauty and into something much, much deeper uh, that we've been talking about. So did you find something beyond your fatigue? Did you find another layer of fatherhood behind exhaustion? Yes. How do you tap yes. into that? How do you, how do you tell parents how to tap into that? You know, I, first of all, I feel that it would be a little presumptuous of me to, to do that, but because you're, you know, you're asking me to answer it, I'll, I'll try to. <laughs> um, I think there's a point where, uh, you know, we just hung on. We just kept, kept going and had some sort of, you know, hope that we were going to get through to the other side, um, despite exhaustion, despite frustration. Um, loving somebody that much gave us the, the wherewithal to keep going, even even in the setting of sleep deprivation and the rest of it. Um, in the end, just I think this is true for other families as well. But, you know, love is the thing that, that prevails in the end, and it really is all that matters in the end. You were able to be... There's a, there's a picture for, for the listeners. There's a picture behind you of, of your son, uh, biking. Is that, yeah. is that's the two of you? 
That's us, yeah. Did you have a, a bike made where you could take him on? Talk about that. Talk about getting yeah. him out and getting uh, him into, into activity. So there were some pioneers around here in the Boston area, specifically a father and a son called the Hoyts, Dick Hoyt and Rick Hoyt. Dick Hoyt pushed his son, who had cerebral palsy, in the Boston Marathon. I believe they completed 32 Boston Marathons right. together. Astonishing. Um, so they were pioneers. We watched them and we thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's more that we can do than we realize. So we, uh, we borrowed uh, this, this two-person bike from a friend that only had three speeds. Um, and it basically had a little wheelchair in the front. And the guy in the back would pedal. Um, but when we got outside and realized that we could experience those kinds of, those kinds of sports, yeah. eventually including skiing with a sit-ski, uh, and eventually in including um, a special kayak we had, uh, we we really found a profound um, experience that just you know transcended uh, our normal day to day life. Just being outside in the sun, feeling the wind on our faces, doing a challenging sport that's hard even for able-bodied people uh, gave us gave us a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy together that we could pull this off the two of us. As as the father says about his son. Dick about Rick, he believed that his son was the athlete. He was just lending him some muscle power. And that's sort of, I think that would apply pretty much to how Graham and I did it too. You know, being a doctor, I, and I and this is assumption, and I grew up around doctors. My father was a, a CEO of a hospital uh, uh, where I grew up. So I grew up knowing all the doctors in my community. Um, and there is a level of training and intellect required and a level of scientific deduction required to be able to look at things from a, a, a scientific lens, to have a disconnect so that you can do the work without emotionally getting caught up. But as I've said in the beginning, uh, these are parents listening to you whose kids are really struggling and therefore the family struggling. Were you able to maintain the balance of having the scientific knowledge and understanding, the clinical understanding of what was going on with your son with being a dad? Or did you just, did you swap out one for the other and just go full dad? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, like there, there's a, there's a limit to caring in caring for, uh, for what you have to do in medicine, but parenthood has to be the opposite. Yeah. I mean, I was Graham's de facto physician most of his life. Oh, I'm sure. Even though he had a pediatrician, it was just easier for me to take care of minor things than to go spend three hours in a waiting room someplace. Right. Um, so, so on the one hand, uh, I was observing him from the scientific lens and understanding that his nervous system had been damaged. And I understood what spasticity was. Um, but on the other hand, I could put that aside and just sort of ignore, ignore that scientific deficit and just try to relate to him as my son and experience the world as best we could as father and son. And his mom was magnificent at this, by the way, not just me. Um, so I guess I tried to, I tried, I tread some kind of a delicate 
line there, uh, being on the one hand really being his doctor, but on the other hand realizing that there wasn't all that much I could do about uh, the situation he was in. His brain had been damaged by something, and we had to make the best best of the circumstances that we had. Knowing as a doctor that cerebral palsy can put limitations on life expectancy, how did you how did you go through that process? Did did the the experience of watching debilitation begin did you retreat back to the medicine and the and the caregiving as a doctor or were you able to again keep that compartmentalized and just be with him even though clinically you knew we're moving in that direction so unlike some neurologic diseases uh say some of the muscular dystrophy cerebral palsy is not necessarily progressive so the deficit a kid has at age 10 doesn't necessarily get worse. Right. But it's also true that their life expectancy is shorter, usually because of other morbidities like epilepsy. Right. Uh, one thing that was interesting and helpful was going to Camp Jabberwocky and, and being among campers who were middle-aged and had cerebral palsy. There were two or three gentlemen there who had been going since they were seven or eight years old. And when we started going there, they were in their 50s. Wow. And we have a guy there now who's in his early 70s who still, who still comes every year. He's an exception. Um, but uh, it was encouraging to, to hang out with these guys and see them having fun well beyond their 20s and 30s uh, in, in the setting of Camp Jabberwocky, even though they had quite severe disabilities and depended on people for everything. Um, so yeah, I knew there was probably going to be a limit um, to his longevity, but it didn't feel like it was anything imminent. Um, there was an irony in the, involved in the whole thing, which was that I was with Graham when he died. We were swimming together when he had a seizure. I had the unenviable experience of performing CPR on my own child. Um, the irony being that I had worried for years that something like that would happen to him when I wasn't with him, and somebody wouldn't be able to help him. And when it finally did happen, I was with him. So it was a bit of a bitter pill to swallow that I wasn't able to resuscitate him. There's also maybe a, a strange blessing that I was you know, with him in those moments. The, when, I, when I first heard about your book from the publicist and, and got connected to you, the thing that struck me the most, obviously, was... The, the response from the community when uh, the memorial, the funeral happened. Talk about yeah. that, please. The first thing was uh, walking up to the church and realizing that uh, people were standing outside because the church was full. Yeah. I think it held 750 souls. Um, and obviously, Graham's mom and I don't have 750 good friends. <laughs> So right away, that was a tip-off that something had happened um, in the community at large in which Graham had touched other lives, even, even more so than his mom and I appreciated. Uh, the second thing was when we started getting condolence cards. And I think on about the third or fourth day, the, the mailman had to bring them in a, in a shopping bag. Um, I think we ended up getting 1,500 condolence cards. Wow. 
And uh, part of the reason for that was that Graham got a terrific obituary in the Boston Globe, which talked about a lot of the themes that you and I are talking about today. Um, the title of the obit was Angel in the Service of God, uh, which came from an experience that his mom and I had uh, at the funeral parlor where we had to fill out the death certificate with this young funeral director. And on the form, there was a, there was a blank that said occupation. You know, it said date of birth, date of death, occupation. And I think his mom said, well, he was really an angel. And I said, yeah, he sure was. And she said, an angel in the service of God. And this young man had a black pen poised on the legal document as if to say, do I really write that down? <laughs> but he really wrote it down. Um, and so a, a week later, I got the death certificate. It said, Graham Hale Gardner, age 22, angel in the service of God. Wow. And so that phrase went into his obituary and uh, in the Boston Globe. And it like, apparently resonated for a lot of people because a lot of people wrote us after that. What inspired you to write the book? That's a great question. So I think in the beginning, it was more selfish, uh, just wanting to not forget certain stories, certain adventures, certain um, epiphanies that had come to me through Graham. So I'd scratch out some thoughts or some ideas and put them in a drawer. Uh, and then over time, I started to think, you know, maybe, maybe uh, his story could have an inspirational uh, effect on other people. Maybe, maybe just other families that were experiencing living with someone with a disability, or maybe even beyond that, maybe people who have had to deal with loss and grief of a loved one and ask themselves, what did it all mean? And specifically, will I ever get to see this person again? So the question I thought after a while is, you know, maybe these stories are strong enough, interesting enough to have an effect on some other people. So, so it slowly sort of organically changed from just some reminiscence in, into a book form. Right. We're this, this book's on Amazon. We're in the bookstores. We're on audible. You, you, we're everywhere. Correct. That's correct. It's available everywhere. And uh, I, wow. I'm, I've, I've, I think I've spent half of the podcast trying not to burst into tears. This is, this is such a touching story. It's beautifully written and it's, it's beautifully presented by you. I, this, this, this experience, listening to you talk about your son, your experience, your marriage, being a doctor with a son who touched so many lives, seeing the human side and the clinical side all wrapped up into one to you. Uh, Dr. Gardner, thank you so much for this experience. How can, how can people connect to you directly? How can they find you and, and just be a satellite to your planet? Um, we do have a website for that book and it's just called jabberwockybook.com. And I think that's probably a good place to start. Uh, there are more stories there. There are lots of fun pictures there, a couple of videos. Um, I would say that's the best place uh, to connect. Jabberwockybook.com. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Gardner, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, fan, Thank you for having me. 
absolutely fantastic and much love to you and your family. Uh, and I am just, you got my prayers and thoughts and for the success of this book and for this story to touch as many people as possible. All right. Thank you so much. All the best to you and your listeners. Hey, hang with me just for a second. I hope you could feel what I felt parents that there was a, this was an opportunity to say that this idea of moving past what, what our kids are doing, what our teens are doing, that's causing us so much pain and strife that there's a place to find beyond. Is it ethereal? Is it spiritual? Is it a, is it a physical place beyond fatigue? And I think Dr. Gardner said it when he said it's, it's, it's love. It's love that in the end, the, the medicine, the fatherhood, the titles, the camp, all this thing, what he, the result was love. And that is how his son affected the community. That's how Graham, without a single word, touched an entire community. And that's, that's why I wanted to tell, have, have Dr. Gardner tell this story and have this podcast with you. As always, my thanks to Deepin Productions for the production of this podcast and creating this music. My thanks to Your Cause Consulting for finding the right people to listen to this podcast and get this podcast in front of them. And thank you, listeners. Parents, if you are wondering if your child needs treatment, if you're wondering if you need coaching, if you are wondering what to do next, you can always go to my Facebook page. Obviously, it's free. Parenting Teens That Struggle. I post these podcasts. I post videos. I post parent questions and comments. There's a community there on Parenting Teens That Struggle that's almost 800 deep um, that's ready to support you with what you're going through with your kids. And to that note, parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third because that's how we do our best work with our children. My thanks to my guest, Dr. Stephen Gardner. Go to jabberwockybook.com or go pick up the book Jabberwocky anywhere because it's out and it's good. I'll see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. <laughs>